go to Ohio State University football game, their university hymn is called Carmen Ohio. And it's actually that tune to come Christians join to sing. So whenever I'm there and the music begins to play, I just sing the words from the hymnal. I just, <laughs> everyone's looking at it, turning around. It's like, how in the world do you put words so quickly to a tune that's familiar like that? It's like, well, that's a special skill that I have. <laughs> Let me tell you how that works. Anyways, thank you, Lincoln, for preparing our hearts again to, to worship the Lord. Romans chapter 12 this morning. For those of you who are guests, if you'd like to follow along with the Bible, if you weren't able to bring one this morning, or maybe someone forgot yours at car at home, we have some ushers who are ready to give you a Bible to follow along with. If you don't have one on your device, just slip up your hand, keep it up in the air until you get a Bible, and um, we'll look forward to studying the next section of this particular chapter of Romans together. The Lord's given us a great country to live in, hasn't he? Amen. It's been very, very merciful to us as we celebrate July 4th, uh, the anniversary of our independence as a country. Let's remember that, that uh, we have a country to win for Christ, Amen. not a country that lives for Christ. Okay? And uh, let's keep our focus clear and our individual responsibility clear. Uh, a nation is not truly free until it's free in Christ. Okay? So spiritual freedom is man's greatest need, not, not uh, religious freedom, okay? Just remember that. It's all right to pledge allegiance to a flag. It's all right to be one nation under God, whatever that means. And I'm, you're not going to find a bigger patriot than me, all right? I love our country's history, and I love the Judeo-Christian ethic upon which it was founded. And we, we love her. Uh, we love all that is her. Uh, we want to love her soul. We want to minister to her soul. And uh, so let's, as we celebrate the 4th of July week, and we should, I can't wait for Wednesday. By the way, no prayer meeting Wednesday night. You be with your families and be in the community. Enjoy your fireworks. I'm going to. And if the Brants don't have any food for me up the street and the Master Petros don't have any food for me up the street, I'm going to. I'm going to invite them down to my house, and we'll have some big juicy ones on the grill. And uh, let's just enjoy the holiday. But as we do, okay, uh, let's maybe incorporate in there our daily prayers, an opportunity to talk to someone about spiritual freedom, okay? As we enjoy the freedom in our country, let's pray that God will give us an opportunity to pray for uh, communicating with a soul, a soul what true spiritual freedom is in Jesus Christ, okay? All right. Let's read together this morning in Romans chapter 12, and let's begin here in the ninth verse. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. At first glance, it appears that these verses, in these verses, that the author simply lists a litany of commands and Christian responsibility. 
There doesn't seem to be at first glance any rhyme or reason to their order. And if you've read the book of Romans over and over in your life as a, as a believer, you may have come across this kind of machine gun virtue list of responsibilities and directives. And you might say, okay, I'll do them all the best I can. Uh, and you move on to the next section. I want to do our best to outline the book of Romans in a way that's going to be most understandable to us so that it could be most applicable to us. I don't want this middle section of this 12th chapter, which is the first chapter of the practical section of this book. Remember, chapters 1 through 11 are the doctrinal section, familiar to Paul's ways of writing. The glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us in great detail in the first 11 chapters. Now, how in the world do we begin to live it? Picture Romans chapter 12 as a three-story house that's on a solid foundation. Kind of keep that picture in your mind. The foundation is verses 1 and 2. We've already discussed that. If you're a guest here this morning, you can go back online and actually watch these services or listen to them. The foundation is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The first story of this three-story house was last week, verses 3 through 8. And we have a title for that particular story of this three-story house. And it's just titled Community. Community. What is the community of God in the local church? And how does he have her function? What is she supposed to do? And, and you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. The second floor of this three-story house we're going to call Compassion. And those are the verses that we just read, 9 to 16. Foundation, verses 1 and 2. Community, verses 3 through 8. Compassion, verses 9 to 16. 17 to 21 is our third story. We'll get to that next week, and it's just labeled commission. Commission. And that's along the lines of the Great Commission. What's our responsibility as a community that loves well to our region, to our area? And I think there's a divine order to hear. Foundation. Community's got to be founded in the right place. It's got to act right in that first floor. It's got to love right. And if it's on the right foundation, acts right, and loves right, it will, understand me, it will have an influence for the gospel in its area. And I think the more we understand this three-story house as a church of will, this first chapter, the practical part of this book, the more we will see around us the Lord adding new believers from our community because you're on the right foundation. You're functioning well as a community and you're loving each other right. But for today, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about what it means to love well inside this community. To love well. And we'll spend the rest of our time in these verses that uh, we just read together. Often, and I, I love to study corporate business and their models and their missions and so forth. So Anytime I get my hands on any kind of that material, I'll read it. And uh, what I'm finding is, is that uh, corporations across the country are, are retooling, they're rewording their mission statements, and a lot of them are taking them down from one clear, concise, compelling statement, and they want to define their company with one, at the most, two words. Why do we exist using no more than one or two words? 
And that's what the Apostle Paul does for us here, beginning in verse 9. He gives us one word. One word that defines how the community of Christ should exist. And how. Hang on with me here. What does she look like? And how does she act? What does she look like and how does she act? Defined in one word. And we'll see it here again in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, this is the first part of this verse, but I want to let you know in your English Bible, it looks like a complete sentence, doesn't it? Well, as we understand the English language, it's not a complete sentence. This sentence has no verb in the original language. Okay? It has no verb. Can I tell you what it literally says? If you were to sit down with the Greek New Testament and write it out, it says, the love sincere. Three words. The love sincere. A lot of theologians put it together in two words. Love sincerely or love, right? In the Greek language, it's one word. In the English language, it's two. Without hypocrisy. Love sincere. Love sincerely. That's the one word pledge of allegiance. In the Greek language, one word. In our language, two. What is sincere love? What is genuine love? What is love, and maybe your English translation, without hypocrisy? And, and I would say that the word hypocrisy, according to the, English, the Greek language, is probably the most accurate term because we get our English word hypocrisy from the Greek root that's mentioned here. Okay, So I want to be very clear with that. But we don't understand hypocrisy in our culture the way the Romans would have understood the use of the words in the first century. Let me tell you how they understood the use of the word hypocrite. They would have been thinking automatically theater. All right? These would have been thespian people. When they heard the word ahypocritas, without hypocrisy or hypocrisy, they would have been thinking of an actor or an actress on a stage who was given a role to play. And they either played that role well or they didn't. You were a hypocrite in theater if you were given a role and you didn't do it well. And a matter of fact, your understudy may have come up and taken your place in this culture, and they would have been ahypocritas, without hypocrisy. They would have done a better job at their role than you. When we understand hypocrisy in our culture, we're automatically thinking about a Christian who knows what to do and doesn't do it. Or a Christian who knows what to do, says they are doing it, but in reality they really aren't. We call that a hypocrite. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of people in our culture anymore that says, I used to go to church, but I don't go to church anymore because the church is full of a bunch of what? Right. Right. You know. That's not the way Paul... Hang out with me here. That's not the way Paul ever uses that term in the New Testament. And here, he ties it to one word, love. What does it mean to love? And you're going to do this role this way, and you'll show yourself to be a genuine character of the love of God, or you're not. Okay? Now, the word love here is a word that many of you would assume it would be. It comes from the Greek word agape. What do we know about the word agape here? It's not an emotive love. It's not the love of emotion. It's not the guy seeing a girl for the first time that he thinks she's really cute and his heart rate goes up. 
right? You might break into a little bit of a cold sweat, right? It's not the girl that's swept off her feet from a potential knight in shining armor. It's not the love that we'll fear on Wednesday, when we, that, that we'll see when we, on Wednesday when we see the fireworks going off and you have a tear well up in your eye and you're proud to be an American, right? That's not the kind of love this is talking about here. That's a good love. It's a necessary love. It's a natural love, but it's not an objective love. The word love here in the Greek language has no emotion to it. But it's the love of God. Think about this, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. We love him because he first loved us. Now, what moved God in all of his purity to love such sinful people? It wasn't a feeling that he had. Our sinfulness only aroused in God the emotion of anger. Right? The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, the wrath of God abides upon all mankind because we're sinners. We're separated from God. Our sin separates us from God. So what kind of love would move God to decide to act to send his son? It was the love of choice. It was the love of choice. God was compelled of himself to choose to love the unlovely. That's you and me. That's you and me. And now Paul's saying here, if you're on the right foundation and you're existing well in the community, there's a lot of right choices that you're going to have to make on this second floor of Christian practical existence if you're going to be the proper lover inside the local church. A lot of choices you're going to have to make. That's why, as we rifle through these verses that we read about 10 minutes ago, that's why it looks like some kind of a, a machine gun list of just mere responsibility. Right? Well, there's only two Greek verb forms in these verses that we've read. And both give the implication of, yep, this is just what you do, whether you feel like doing it or not. This is just what we do, and we'll do it again if we're going back to verses 1 and 2, living in the realm of that right foundation. This is your logical act of service, right? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And as you do this, you'll look more like Christ in the world, and then you'll put yourself into a community of spiritually healthy people in a local church, and you'll act like community like we described last week, and, and this community only continues to exist if it loves well, and love is really confined here to making a lot of right choices. Okay? So don't ever forget the flow of this text. Paul didn't start with merely making right choices, did he? That would have been kind of a cold, you know, clear as ice and just as cold kind of a way of approach to this. He started off with the organic transformation, be transfigured. Remember that? And then he talks about all the value that spiritual community brings to us. Remember that? The assumption is, though, this, that if the foundation's right and the community's healthy, you will make right choices and you'll win more battles than you'll lose. So this isn't a cold, hard, fast externalism or legalism. You do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do that. That's not Christianity, my friends. 
Right choices are the fruit of right relationships. Relationship with Christ, relationship with his word, relationship with each other, right choices. You see the order? Please don't forget that. Especially those of you who are in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, who may have been raised in religious organizations where there was a lot of rules without relationships and that typically equaled rebellion in our lives. Because all we were told were the do's and the don'ts, cross your T, dot your I, do this, don't do this, and you will be okay with God and with man. And you found out that didn't do anything to change me. I end up living a pretty bad life. But the gospel does what? Changes us from the inside. Gives us a right foundation, verses 1 and 2. Puts us in a community of people that aren't hypocrites. They're just growing in what it means to be community. And they know how to love and make right choices and win more battles than they lose. As my dad used to tell me when he really wanted to get a point across, at the end of a particular discussion, he would say, capiche? (laughs) You get it? We got this? This This is so critical. Before we continue. All right? All right. I'm assuming you are getting it. So... The love sincere. The love sincere. That is our introduction. All right? Now, I'm going to give you four simple points that tell us what love is and what love does. Are you ready? If you take notes, here they are. Love is holy. Love is holy. This is the second half of verse 9. Some of you take notes and you'll put 9B. Love is holy. We find out in verse 10 that love is relational. Love has character. It's holy. Love involves living the Christian life with people in a particular way. Verse 10, love is relational. Verses 11 and 12, love is passionate. You say, of course I know that. I've got a great marriage. I know love is passionate. Again, this is agape love. This is a non-emotive love, right? right? Passionate about what? Making right choices, and we're going to discuss that here because it's kind of neat here. Love is passionate, verses 11 and 12. And finally, uh, this morning, uh, we'll see here towards the end that love is aware Love is aware in verses 13 to 16. Love is holy. Love is holy. Let's look here again at verse 9. The second part of verse 9 says, Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. Love abhors evil And the grammar tells us here, it does so with consistency. One author said this, that the basic moral intention of love is to hate evil. The basic moral intention or choice of love is to hate evil. He went on to say this, proper love has a violent hatred for evil. Wickedness. Remember growing up, maybe some of you were told, hey, love the sinner, but hate the sin. How many of you have heard that phrase? Love the sinner, but hate the sin. 
That's basically what Paul's saying here. But we haven't jumped outside into the context of community yet. That's next week. He's talking about the immediate context of inside the body of Christ. And then he starts individual, and next we're going to go relational. Remember, we're talking about love being objective, love making choices. So before we get to the relational side in verse 10, we start on the individual side. And what are you supposed to do as an individual? So everyone draw an imaginary circle around your own seat right now and say, and pretend like Paul is writing this to you. You have a violent hatred for wickedness. You. Go over to Galatians 5. Hold your finger here in Romans chapter 12. And let's go over to Galatians 5. When I was growing up, folks, and I love the way I was, grew- I was reared. My parents loved me. They gave me the gospel early. I, I was raised on a spiritual silver spoon. I've told you folks that over and over and over again. And I, my life was saved from so much agony. I know that. Because I knew Christ early. And I knew him well often. But I will tell you something about my rearing that my parents and I had lots of discussions about later on in life. Okay? This is how I was primarily taught to hate evil. They would tell me what evil was and they would tell me then what to do and what not to do in relationship to that evil. And it was kind of like, just trust me. And then being reared in a Christian academic environment, which I'm immensely thankful for, all those do's and don'ts would be put into the form of a rule book, and your holiness was discerned practically as to how well you adhered to the rules in that rule book. And if you were don'ting the don'ts and doing the do's and dotting your I's and crossing your T's, you must be a person of character. Now, what we learned later on is that was... Uh, that was information given uh, outside of its immediate context in Romans 12, right? Without too much, as much attention to the foundation, verses 1 and 2, that we needed community, local church. That we need, that's another whole discussion. And now compassion and right choices. And right choices starts with the individual, not the body. Did you hear me? Right choices starts with the individual Christian, not some directives given to a body or to a classroom. You be individually transformed, verses 1 and 2. You be involved in community with the right disposition and so forth. You have a violent hatred for sin. How do we know what sin is? I'm going to tell you, for me, and maybe it'll help for you, that the best way that I could really find out what God hated was by going and reading Paul's sin lists. So let's go to Galatians 5, and let's read Paul's most comprehensive New Testament sin list. Okay? Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Verse 19. And everyone follow along if you can, and we'll let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart on these things, because this is not a message on Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of sinfulness are evident, which are these. Any type of sexual activity outside of marriage. You say, where's that in the sentence? That's the Greek word for immorality. Now listen well, please. 
any type of sexual activity outside the context of biblical marriage is a work of evil. Impurity. Anything that leads up to activity that is immoral outside the context of marriage. Sensuality. Idolatry. Loving anything materially and being devoted to it more than you are to your God. Sorcery, which is where we get our English word pharmacy. It's pharmakeia. Anything in the drug world. Anything in the illegal, illicit drug world. We are to have a violent hatred because God calls it not a disease or a sickness, but sin. Enmities, just being a bully and not getting along with people, God hates that. Strife, being a person who sets fires instead of prevents fires. Jealousy speaks for itself. Wearing your feelings on your sleeves, outbursts of anger. Disputes, dissensions, divisions, factions, envyings, drunkenness. And if you thought, that drunkenness, well, I don't get drunk, but I still drink. The next one answers that, carousing, which in the original language would have been social drinking at parties. So Pastor Tim, now you're meddling. I didn't say it, God did. Amen. And if you social drink, I'll still love you. And I'll point you to this verse and pray that God will bring you to the point of hating what alcohol does to our culture. And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who regularly live their lives doing these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how do we know how love lives? We have to know what love hates. Love hates wickedness violently hates wickedness. Now, what I've done in my personal life for me, my wife, and my children, this is what I've done as a dad and a husband. I've taken these sin lists. Okay. And if I don't get through all four points today, I hope you come back tomorrow or next week. Amen. Because this is so important, I think, to our function as a community when understanding love. So critical. And, and a lot of our kids are no longer, and it's okay, I suppose, no longer going through Christian education where a lot of these moral values are being taught five days a week, nine months a year. So if we're going to take our kids out of that environment, which is your choice to do, not right or wrong, I'm just telling you, you had better be ready to inform your children in a Deuteronomy 6 way exactly what love hates. We don't hate the people. We hate the sin, Remember? We're not haters of people. We're lovers of God. And we hate what he hates. God hates sin. Amen. Okay? Hang on with me here. Take, and all I want you to do is evaluate it. I don't even want you to decide on it right now. Take all of these words in Galatians 5, 19 and 20. Take every one of them. And I want you to do, I just encourage you to do this, okay? Um, no, I want you to do this. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I want you to take all these words and I want you to write them down. And I want you to put them over your screen. 
okay? Because on your screen is going to be a playlist. On your screen is, is, is where you watch Netflix. Or on your screen is where you watch various shows that you love. And the Bible, Jesus says, the window to your soul is through your eye, right? And a man thinks, so is he. I want you to take Paul's sinless, and I just want to make sure that everything that you're listening to and everything that you're watching does not include what love hates. Kids, parents, your children's souls depend on this. And it's not externalism. We didn't start with the rules and move back to relationship with Jesus Christ. This is how we know if we truly know him. Transformation, community, choice. Religion rots to hell if it's just based off of rules and you do what I say. That's birthed out of the hottest part of hell. But Jesus, when he comes into a life, he changes it. Amen. He sets your life from living a life of unrighteousness to a life of Christ-likeness. And it's never going to be perfect. He just gives you the grace to transform you and gradually change you. And guess what I didn't have to do? I didn't have to do what the old school people did, which was this. Name the movie and tell people why they shouldn't go to it. Name the musical artist and tell them why they should go burn their, what used to be called tapes. <laughs> right? I didn't have to get all name and all fiery and all pouncy and all this. All I'm trying to tell you is, love hates violently hates evil because love is all about your soul. Now you make adjustments based on the word of God. And what you'll find out is predominantly, not exclusively, you'll find out these two things. Are you hanging with me? Okay. You'll find out these two things. The world's entertainment predominantly is saturated with the sin list in Galatians 5, 19 and 20. You can't get away from it. In sound or content, just listen. You have, you know. Many of you have more secular lyrics memorized than you do hymns. Many of you kids have watched the same movie so many times you could quote every line in that one and a half hour flick and you can't give us 10 seconds of scripture memory. Hang on. Just take the list and understand primarily, not exclusively, I want to be honest with that. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Most of what we're watching and listening to is going to have one if not more of those perpetually throughout what we're watching. Now remember this, number two. Are you ready? Just to show you that there's some things that are more biblical than old-fashioned. The old-fashioned way was what it was. We're thankful for what it gave us, but the old-fashioned way never taught us this. That even though you're trying to live with God, or for God, you're still going to make a mistake. Right? You're still going to sit down and watch something that you're going to say, oh, wow, 
probably wouldn't see that again. Okay? You're going to listen to something, and you're going to say, well, predominantly, the lyrics are pretty good. The sound we can argue about, boy, but there's that one song where out of the blue, this particular artist starts parading around and, and, and singing the praises of something on one of those sin lists. And you got to say, dog, stink. Man, what do I do with that? Right? And all I'm saying is this. I don't have some kind of hard and fast cookie-cut way to tell you how to dot your I's and cross your T's. All I can tell you as a pastor who loves his people, hopefully with a genuine, sincere love, that the love of choice chooses to have a violent hatred for wickedness, and the Bible tells us what wickedness is, and all we can do is lay those things over our lives, and you take an individual inventory of choices in your life, Okay. And some of us know automatically the Holy Spirit's ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. He's already telling us what's wrong because you know the lyrics. You know what you've watched. Yeah, and we'll have some adjustments to make. But I'm not asking you to make those adjustments today. All I'm asking you is be willing to make adjustments for the rest of your life. This isn't something you walk an aisle and throw a stick in a fire at an old Christian camp and say, I give it all to God. This dude at 50 years old who's been saved for 45 years of his life is still making choice mistakes. It's, wow, I don't think I'll do that again. But I'm not able to make those proper choices or even realize it's a choice mistake if I don't know the list in Galatians 5, 19 and 20. Does that make sense? And remember this, I'm going to add a three to this one and two, right? Number three, when you do make a choice and you're convicted about it, it probably means you're born again. If you make a wrong choice and you're convicted about it, it probably means you're born again. And there's biblical guilt and unbiblical guilt. Bible guilt would say, yeah, you probably shouldn't have done that. But the Bible says, confess, forsake, prosper, right? If you confess your sin, he's able to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, not some, and move on and grow. If you make a mistake, it's not the end of your progressive sanctification. Unbiblical guilt is a lot of guilt that we were reared with, if those of you that are part of that small group in our, in our congregation. If you made a mistake, you had to live with that mistake forever. Confess, forsake, prosper? Yeah. We just hope you always feel bad about making that mistake. No, that's not grace. That's not how God's grace operates. You're never going to bat a thousand. All that Paul's saying is this. Make sure you're choosing as rightly as possible. And if you really want to know what to choose against, look at Galatians 5, 19 and 20. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Look at those lists. This one's not comprehensive. It's the most comprehensive, but look at all those. Then take all of those sin lists and put it over what you're seeing and listening to, and then let the Spirit of God guide you. Okay? Love. Remember how these folks would have understood love. Remember, it was in the context of play acting. 
Paul's talking about a soliloquy here. If you know theater, you know what a soliloquy is. Someone who comes forward with some lines of a part of a play or whatever is going on in that particular venue, theatric venue, and he's all alone. This is the guy who maybe steps forward into a spotlit place on the stage and behind him the curtain's closed and it's pitch black. And he or she has something to say that's critical to the outcome of the whole play. You decide. You decide. This is what love does. All right, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your patience.